Okay, uh, only uh, significant announcements, I think, for right now have to do with uh, just the, the uh, November calendar, no Bible class on Thanksgiving Day, and also the Operation Christmas Child ends next uh, next Sunday, I believe, Sunday or Monday. Oh, and we have forgotten to mention that uh, we interviewed Mike and Sarah Hoyden for membership, and they were accepted for membership, so I need to make that announcement uh, a couple more times. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, make sure we're, we are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we can come together this evening to uh, focus upon you, to think about what you've revealed in your word, and to probe what you've revealed in your word a little more deeply, a little more profoundly, that we might come to understand certain aspects of creation, of your creation, and the way in which we relate to that creation and live our lives as we think in terms of economics and the management of, of the resources that you have given us. And, Father, we pray that as we think these things through, it will give us a better understanding of, of not only economics as it affects a city or a state or a nation, but also in terms of our own personal pocketbooks as we go through this process. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Start off in Genesis chapter 1 tonight. Oh, there we go. Now I finally have it. Last time, on last Tuesday night, I spent a good bit of time talking, probably about three-fourths of the time, talking about the situation with relation to Israel. So we just barely got back on topic for about 15 or 20 minutes before class was over with. But we are in this series coming out of Acts as just sort of a uh, mini-series within our study of Acts, as we have several mini-series in any book that we study, because Acts chapter 5 talks about how the believers in the early church were handling their property. Now, what they did was a matter of their own personal volition, as it is for any of us when it comes to giving. This is really an example of, of giving in the, in the early church, but it fits within a specific context and it is often distorted in, um, in, in numerous uh, periodicals or speeches or political statements, things, and that's one of the key passages, to try to support some kind of idea that Christianity and Jesus really supports uh, some kind of socialism, some sort of communal property. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. And so I thought it was important especially with an election year coming up, just to go through the scriptures and see what the scripture teaches about economics. The Bible's not an economics textbook or a history textbook or a, a textbook on uh, science, but it reveals a lot of universal truths, principles, creation truths, let's say, creation truths that God embedded in his creation. And God, as the sovereign creator over all of his creation, has revealed these principles to us, and we can uh, deduce them from his word. And they, they run throughout his word. God doesn't change these things from one dispensation to another. They, uh, a couple of applications may change in terms of the Mosaic law or some other aspects, but, but they run true to form throughout Scripture. So... It's important for us to learn how to think biblically and within a, 
uh, divine viewpoint framework. And what I mean by that is that the Bible presents us with a unified view of reality. It is God's view of reality. God doesn't, it's not Moses' view here and Paul's view over here and uh, David's view here and Isaiah's view. It is one unified view. The Bible is written by over 40 different authors, but they all present one consistent, unified viewpoint on everything that they touch. There are no contradictions uh, within the Scriptures. And so the Scripture gives us a framework for thinking. And again and again and again, we have an emphasis in Scripture on thought. And so really this applies to every area of life. Uh, Too often uh, Christianity uh, uh, comes to things somewhat superficially, not so much in, in the historical development of Christianity and theology, but in our contemporary times. We think of application in very narrow, personal ways. A lot of this has to do with the way our culture has changed over the last hundred years and how we look at uh, that which we call religion or Christianity, that it's become personal, it's become private, it's become subjective, it's become your opinion. What works for you is fine for you, but what works for uh, you over here may be a little bit different, and so that's fine. That reminds me of a conversation I had the other day. You all will find this somewhat humorous. My aunt died a couple of weeks ago, and um, so for the last 25 years, she has been a member of, of uh, she had been a member of a Unitarian church up in Dallas, and she managed to go through almost everything. She never was a Mormon, but she managed to go through just about about everything. And so um, after the service, which was always, which was interesting. I'm at the reception, and my cousins knew a few people there, and they're within. They're the only ones I knew there. And uh, I'm just went over, got a cup of coffee, said hello to the lady getting coffee out of the uh, coffee urn next to me, and I went over and kind of stood in the corner to look at the crowd. And so this lady I'd said hello to didn't really know anybody there either, so she decided she'd come over and talk to me. She was maybe 65 or 70. And so she, she just came and she said, well, uh, she told me something about why she was there, or that she came with a friend, or brought a friend who, uh, was, uh, who knew my aunt. And then she said, um, uh, so, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm, I, I'm a pastor of a church in Houston. She said, really? She said, uh, so uh, what kind of church? I said, it's a Bible church. What's a Bible church? I said, well, I graduate. I'm a Dallas, after all. I said, well, I'm a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. She said, oh, I'm familiar with Dallas Theological. She said, I live over in Fort Worth. And then she began to give me her little life story about how she grew up. She said, she's, she, of course, she probably saw me as, a, as an ally at this point. She kind of leaned over to me rather quietly. She said, I grew up in this church. It's not much of a church, is it? <laughs> Talking about a Unitarian church, just not much of a church. So I said, um, well, maybe. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in somebody else's house. I'm not going to, uh, you know, say anything uh, too, too insulting while I'm in somebody else's house. But she then went on to tell me, she said, well, I can say negative things about because I grew up in this church. And uh, she said, I married my husband, and he'd grown up Roman Catholic, but he didn't want to go to a Catholic church. So after we tried this, that, and the other thing, she said, and I thought it was so strange how she said this. She said, then there were these two nice young men who came and knocked on our door, and they were wearing suits and white shirts and ties and had a little name badge on. I thought, that's the oddest way to explain it. You know, not just say, well, a couple of Mormon missionaries came by and converted us. No. So she said that, she said, and we've been Mormons ever since 1971. I said, how nice for you. And she said, well, we found it works for us better than anything else. And I just kind of shook my head and said, well, that's not the criteria, is it? But I didn't say that. I was on my best behavior. So, But that's the criteria people have for truth is what works for you. And if it works for you, then it must be true, at least if it's true for you. But this destroys the whole concept of truth and any any sense of absolute. So how can you even, how can the word true in that context even have, uh, even have any kind of meaning? And see, this is, uh, 
this is the attack, this is the culture, this is the attack of our culture on Christianity today, and it's only going to get worse because as the percentage of unbelievers in the culture increases, they, they gain great courage from being associated with others who are coming out of the closet, as it were, and their anti-Christianity, including a number of people who've always been in church of some kind, just because it was a socially acceptable kind of thing, but they never really were, they never were believers. And so they, they went to some uh, denomination that didn't really emphasize a whole lot about truth, and now they're, we see here more and more of this, and they really don't like, uh, don't like Christians. So we have, uh, we have a struggle there because our culture was founded on Judeo-Christian absolutes, and the founding fathers that generation understood these things and they understood that they had a biblical source and they were the they were the beneficiaries of a tremendous heritage of thought that was handed down to them via the english uh, puritans and presbyterians because in the context of the bitter battles that took place between the roman catholics and the protestants in england especially to some degree on the continent, but more specifically in England and to some degree in Amsterdam, because in, in the Netherlands a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, freedom after they threw off the uh, control of the Spanish. There was a lot of freedom there to, to develop their thinking, but they were trying to rebuild their culture from the bottom up based on biblical truth. And so they thought profoundly and deeply about a lot of issues that today are usually not thought of as coming out of the scriptures, including things like things like economics. And part of this is, and understanding this, is we're going back to what I introduced last time, which was the whole topic of the divine institutions, which I have always found to be one of the most helpful uh, tools for thinking about culture thinking about what's going on in the world around us and how to analyze uh, and think, especially when it comes to uh, politics or political things, things related to government, economics, uh, things related to just the broad base of, of, of society, because the divine institutions are for everyone, whether they are a believer or, or an unbeliever, and these were established by God for the purpose of giving stability and productivity to the human race and for also restraining the negative consequences of sin upon upon society. And even though the way that I teach this and the way you've been taught the divine institutions before may not have been organized quite this way uh, in the 1600s, trust me, they clearly, the Puritans especially, clearly understood these as divine institutions in the sense that, that, uh, that I teach them. And there are uh, five divine institutions, but first let me, in my first point, let me define the term a little bit. The term divine institution has been used by Christians to speak of certain absolute social structures that God embedded into the nature of uh, of a human existence from the instant of creation. They were designed for the stability and uh, support of the human race and its perpetuation, so it is for all hum human beings, whether you're believer, unbeliever, Christian, non-Christian, this is something designed for so that the human race can function. Modern paganism views them as byproducts, as evolutionary developments. They're the result of a trial and error procedure, and that by learning about these things, then man was able to somehow uh, come together and organize himself socially so that he could achieve things a little more effectively. Therefore, within the human viewpoint pagan framework, these divine institutions are not seen as absolutes, but they're seen as as being relative, and that they can they they can be 
uh, tinkered with. They can be changed at will, and society itself can be experimented with and restructured according to the thinking of any of any culture, and it won't destroy the culture. That's the caveat at the end. They think they can change these things without destroying the culture. That's because the, that thought can only be the result of the thinking that God is, is not in control and there aren't universal absolutes. Everything is a product of time plus chance, so man is truly the master uh, of his destiny and his culture. The way the world looks at, at these institutions is as human conventions, as if they're, they're, they are something that are, they're culturally, they've become culturally accepted, they've become cultural norms, but they are not true for every culture, every person throughout all time and, and space. Whereas the Bible looks at them as institutions as something that God establishes that has uh, universal application and is a, as it were, a universal social law. There are five of these. The first is individual responsibility. Uh, the second is marriage. Third is family. Fourth is government or judicial authority. And the fifth has to do with nations. Human responsibility, marriage, and family were all given prior to the fall. Therefore, they are not given to the human race in relation to sin. They're not something that's provided in order to somehow control the new sinful direction of the human soul. They were given before sin ever came so that by by within the structure of these three, the human race can take what God originally gave them and make it productive. Now, that idea of productivity is a core element within an understanding of an, any economic system, that man is supposed to be productive. And from the very beginning, God designed man to be productive. God didn't just place Adam and Eve in the garden to sit there and twiddle their thumbs. They were supposed to be productive. And this was built on three things, individual responsibility. Each individual is responsible and accountable to God. Every one of these uh, divine institutions has an authority structure. So the first point was a definition. Second point, list the five. The third point is that each divine institution has an authority structure. Authority is embedded within the God Godhood, the Godhead. God the Father is the authority. And God the Son and God the Holy Spirit follow that authority. They're equal in essence, but there's an authority structure because authority is necessary to get anything done, and it has nothing to do with, with equality because the Father is equal to the Son, the Son is equal to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father in terms of their essence or being, but they are distinct in terms of their role or their function. I'll get into that a, a little bit more. Uh, as we go through this. So we have individual responsibility, and every individual is responsible to God. Second, we have marriage. Because in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God says, I will create man uh, in our image and in our likeness, male and he created them male and female, it shows that there's a corporate sense there related to marriage in fulfilling the, the creation mandate. It, he didn't give it to Adam and then separately give it to Eve. Now, that's really important in a culture today that is so far removed from that that we have vast numbers of our, uh, of our culture and of our nation that are single, where everything is atomized to the individual, but that's not the, the, the structure that we see here. Everything was, was grounded on a, this corporate union of marriage and then and then family. That didn't mean that that you didn't have individual responsibility. Individual responsibility, each individual being responsible to God, is then what makes the corporate union of marriage work. 
it takes two to make marriage work. Two people who are positive to God, ideally within a Christian marriage, two people positive to God, but it only takes one who rejects divine absolutes to make the marriage a failure. So you have individual responsibility, marriage, and then family. Family is designed to promote productivity, advance civilization from the very beginning. Then you have two more that come into play. They come in at separate times. Why I've broken these out into two separate divine institutions. You have government, which is established in the uh, Noahic covenant. When God made the covenant with Noah, he, this is the first time on record God delegates judicial authority to the human race, saying that whenever man sheds man's blood, then man shall shed that blood of the criminal uh, himself. He's responsible man by man's, uh, man shall shed that blood uh, by his own responsibility. So that established a judicial authority, a governing authority. But it's not nations yet. They're still, they will function as clans or tribes or whatever. There's always that authority structure, and now there's a judicial element. But the national element, that national dis- division doesn't come in until God divides the human race through the imposition of languages at the Tower of Babel, which happened some 200 years or so after the, uh, after the Noahic flood. So the fourth and fifth divine institutions are designed to restrain evil. So we're going to, when we talk about economics, we learn a lot from the first three because that's designed to promote productivity and advance of, of civilization. So the third point is that each divine institution has an authority structure. In the first divine institution, the authority is God. In the second divine institution, marriage, the authority is the husband. In the third divine institution of the family, the authority of the parents. In the fourth divine institution of, of human government, the authority would be the uh, executive branch what, uh, of whatever that might be and whatever form that might take. In a monarchy, it would be the king. Uh, in an oligarchy, it would be a group of the elite. It might be a president, a dictator, a Caesar. But there's, there's some group or individual that is the ultimate authority within that, within that nation. And then when it comes to the national entities, the ultimate authority, once again, is God because each nation is accountable to God. Deuteronomy states that God has established the boundaries of the nations. And, and Paul reiterates that thought in uh, Acts chapter 17 when, in his, uh, uh, when he's talking at um, um, Mars Hill at the Areopagus. So every divine institution has an authority. You can't avoid, avoid authority. But the key to really understanding economics is, under, is really analyzing, drilling down on this idea of individual responsibility as it's laid out in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2 gives God's commands to, to uh, uh, Adam, what Adam is responsible for. And Genesis chapter 3 shows what changes as a result of, of, of sin entering into the, into the human race. Now, there are three elements. This is point number four. There are three elements to uh, individual responsibility. Three elements. The first is spiritual or individual accountability. I changed the terminology in my notes, but I didn't change it in the slide as I was working on this today. Individual accountability. Each person is accountable to God. The second is labor or productivity. He is to uh, responsibly use and serve God. And the third has to do with private property. These three elements comprise individual responsibility. Now, in selecting my terminology here, I've chosen to call it individual responsibility Others have called it uh, simply responsibility, volition, uh, personal responsibility, responsible dominion, responsible labor. A number of different pastors have focused on different aspects within this. So you can see by my listing of those different terms that that all these different elements are seen as part of what is communicated in Genesis chapter 2. 
So I think individual responsibility gets at the main thrust is that God gives tasks, responsibilities to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they will be held accountable for that uh, together and individually. So individual responsibility, I think, communicates the main idea here is that we're responsible for the choices that we make and how we utilize the resources that God gives us. Now, that takes us back to the basic definition of economics. Remember, it comes from the Greek word uh, oikonomia, oikonomia, house, law, literally, but it has to do with the administration, and it has to do with how economics has to do with the study of how we administer the resources that we have or how we manage the resources that we have. And that, from that comes the idea of, of economics and, and on a broader scale, how groups of people, how cultures manage the resources they have in terms of raising food, uh, tr- what they do with the excess of, of uh, produce that they have, trading it for others, for things that they don't have. All of these different things relate to the management of resources. And so we take this whole idea, goes back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and Genesis 2, 15. We, as Christians, we have to start with the Bible. What, part of the problem I'll point out as we go through later is that most economic theories start in history or start with human practice. They're starting with experience as opposed to starting with, with God. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't end up with a certain amount of truth. Some of them end up with more truth than others do. But I just want you to remember that most of these human systems we talk about, whether it's capitalism, socialism, Marxism, or whether you're talking about different schools within capitalism, early mercantilism, or uh, currently we have the Austrian school, the Chicago school, uh, other approaches to capitalism, free market ideas, different terms are used, and some people mean different things by the same terms. But the, the point that I'm making is that they all, when you read the, the, the people who are, um, who are explaining these things, who are developing the, the thought, uh, they start with analysis of what happens in culture. They're not starting with the Word of God as, a, as, as, the, as the starting point. But as Christians, that's where we have to start. We can't understand what a tree is if we don't understand Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I don't care how brilliant you are, how, how many PhDs you have in botany, you can't understand a tree or dendrology. You can't understand a tree if you don't understand Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 because that determines whether the tree you're looking at is a product of chance or the product of a well-thought-out plan in the mind of God. So let's just look at this. This is all still under point number four, just explaining a little bit more about individual responsibility. That man was created in the image of God as a reflection of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The word image has to do with the idea that man was a reflection of God's basic makeup component so that he he was a finite representation of God so that he could have a relationship with God, communicate with God, understand God, and that he was in turn to reflect God to that which he was set over. Uh, God, we know... We have to start with who God is, that he exists as a trinity. Now, I'm going to bring in some ideas here that this is where we start really focusing on on thinking about economics. We know God exists as a trinity. We talk about God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We learn, though we don't always understand it as we learn it, that God is one in essence, yet three in person. And we learn that what can be said of the Father can also be said of the Son. What can be said of the Son can also be said of the Holy Spirit because they are one in a unity that is comprised of three separate persons. And we can't quite grasp 
all that that means. But there's a social dimension here. I've pointed this out many times. There's a social dimension here. This dimension is missing in other systems of monotheism that I, that are, I would call Unitarian monotheism because they have an eternal deity that is solitary and he has no object for his love and he is not loved. This is seen in its worst case scenario with Allah in, in Mormon, I mean um, Islam because Allah has no one to love. So either he creates to have an object for his love, which means he is dependent upon his creatures to be to, to show love, or he really isn't love. And that's the reality in, in Islam because Allah is never said to be loved. The word love is never applied to God in the Quran at all. It only appears one or two times, usually in relationship to what a creature loves but it never appears in the Quran in relationship to Allah because in a solitary monotheism, the God is dependent on a creature in order to express that attribute. And if God is self-sufficient and independent, then he is either, he is either a loving God that has a multiplicity of persons within his Godhead or he is not really loving unless or else he's not God because then he would be dependent on his on his creation. So this brings into bear the social dimension of the Trinity. But then there's also an economic dimension to the Trinity. Now that's a different way of you, you that you probably never thought of using the term economic that way. But this is how God administers his plan See, remember, economics has to do with management and administration of resources. So this is how God administers his plan. For example, in the plan of salvation, God the Father is the one who uh, is the architect of the plan of salvation. God the Son carries it out, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals and applies the plan of salvation. They have distinct roles. And in theological uh, literature, these will be described. Uh, the first, the social aspect, is often referred to as the ontological trinity, but that's that, that's get, that's a tough word for a lot of people to process, and so that gets a little bit unwieldy. So we'll just call it the social dimension, and this is the economic uh, dimension. But what this tells us, and this is so fundamental. I know this sounds theoretical, but this, if you don't start here. Then and, and build on this foundation, then everything else uh, really does uh, begin to fall apart. What we see here is that in God, in the Creator, the supreme being who creates the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, the social dimension and the economic dimension are inseparable. They are intertwined. They are interconnected. You can't have social one way and economic another way. Now, what's the application of that? The application is that how many times today do you hear somebody say, well, I'm a social liberal but an economic conservative? You can't be that and really hold to a Trinitarian view of economics. If you hold to a Trinitarian view of economics, a Trinitarian view of reality, then your view of society and relationships has to be consistent with your view of the function and role in the operation of the Godhead. If you have, have them in conflict, then you have a God who's conflicted and he's not consistent. So all things have to hold together ultimately in a unity in, in the Godhead, this, this, you know, to 20th century Christians and, and American citizens who haven't had much of an education, you know, I started grappling with this when I was working on a master's degree in philosophy. You think about somebody like Jonathan Edwards, who was probably thinking beyond this when he was 14 years old, based on the education they had in the colonies in the 1730s, 1720s. My, how far we have fallen you know, we, we wrestle with this today because we just have, we all have this educational deficit thanks to progressive ideas of education and John Dewey. So I just want to make that point that this, this is fundamental is that social issues and economic issues are not 
are, are not separable. You can't say, well, I'm going to follow this view on, on social views and this view on economic views. Ultimately, they have to be consistent and they have to be built on the same, on the same foundation. Now, another thing we note in observing the passages in Genesis 1, uh, 27, let me back up, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, is that God created man with a purpose. He gave, gave him a role. He gave him a function. He gave him things to do. Now, some people have said, well, I don't like the way using the word labor. But, but remember, in Genesis 2, labor isn't laborious. Labor is just a term for work, for fulfilling responsibilities, for doing jobs that needed to be done, but, but it's in a perfect environment, so there's no sweat, there's no toil. That comes after Genesis chapter 3. So God blessed man, and he said to them, notice you've got five commands here in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, this isn't something that is said after the fall, and that's really important because this has to do with man's mission to rule over all of the planet. He was to take dominion over all of the resources that God put on the planet, and Adam and Eve as finite creatures could not ever do that. They could. It would be impossible to, fill, to fulfill the original uh, creation mandate here by just two people. So they're told to fill the earth and subdue it. Subduing the earth can't, you know, Adam couldn't do it. The idea here is that they were to multiply, they were to have children and they were to teach their children and, and the human race was to serve under the authority of God and exercise dominion and develop the resources of the planet. God had this planet, it's got gold, it's got silver, it's got uh, petroleum, it's got trees, it has animals, it has all kinds of natural resources that were untapped and undiscovered and unused. And it was part of the responsibility of, of the human race to discover the qualities of all of those resources and then to exploit them in a positive sense to use them and to utilize them because that's how God created them. God is, we have to really push the envelope here, what it means that God's a creator and man's the creature under the authority of God. has incredible ramifications for uh, our view of the environment, but I'm not going to go there. First, and then in chapter 2, verse 15, God gave a, another command to the man. Notice, not to Eve, but to the man because he's the head of the team. So the coach, when the coach calls in, is going to send in a play for the football team, he doesn't send someone, a runner, to each player. He sends it to the quarterback. The quarterback is the authority, the leader on the team, and the quarterback then communicates the play to the team. So God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it. This is the Hebrew word avad which means to work, it also means to serve and to guard. The Hebrew word there is shamar, to guard. What are they guarding the Garden of Eden from? Who's the bad guy? Oh, we have, fall, have to have the fall of Satan here. So it, 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 this, this idea here is there, there's responsibility. There are seven verbs here that describe positive responsibilities. They're to maintain, they're to serve God in the garden and, and develop it, and they're there to keep it, they're to protect it, they're to, uh, they are to guard it. There's a negative also. And in Genesis 2.17, the negative is that they are uh, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in the process, God gives them other, another responsibility, that was to name all the animals. Now, this begins that process I talked about earlier, uh, looking at the natural resources and understanding them. The first resource God directs them to is the animals, to name them. Adam is told to name them. It's just Adam. You know, he hasn't created Eve yet. So Adam is to name the animals. So what, what's involved in that? And it's not all the animals, by the way, at this point. It seems that these are the, the, the term that's used here would relate to the domestic animals that would populate the immediate garden. So he's going to go through and he's going to have to identify 
all the animals. Well, I have one here that has four legs, a long tail, uh, short fur, and it's kind of brown colored with spots. And over here I have another one, and, and it's, it's a darker brown, and he's heavier, and he's rounder, and he has different kinds of feet, and he has different looking ears, so that's a different kind. He has to start what? Observing all the different animals that are there. And all of a sudden he says, oh, there's one. Wait a minute. I thought I just saw you over here. Oh, there's two of you. Puts them together. Names them. And it goes through the process and realizes there's two. They're all paired up. So he's, he's making observation. He's coming to conclusions. And on the basis of those conclusions, he names or identifies each of these animals. At the end of the day, he says, hmm, everybody's got a counterpart but me. So now it's a teaching moment. God comes in, puts him to sleep, and says, now we're going to teach you humility. I'm going to create a, a helper for you, actually. A helper. Helper to do what? Helper in the task of managing these resources that God has set up there. He, a helper in fulfilling the mandates to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and to rule over it. That's the management idea. So he and, he, and, and together they're going to cultivate and keep it. They're going to serve God. I prefer serve and guard in the garden. So this sets this up. What we see here is what? Individual accountability. We see that there is labor, there is uh, productivity, man, and man is going to enjoy uh, the rewards of his work. And there is private property. They're put in charge of a specific piece of real estate. Who owns the real estate? God owns the real estate. Now, this is really important because when you get over into Exodus and we look at the Mosaic Law and God's going to give the Israelites the land of Canaan and this is going to be their promised land, and you read through the Mosaic Law, you read that they do have a, an income tax. They have a, a, a set uh, income tax of, of uh, a flat rate tax of 10%. There are three of them. It's not progressive, though. It doesn't go up to 12% or 15% if you make more money. If you make less money, it doesn't drop down to 8% or 7%. It is equitable. What's the key word that we want in, for law? It should be just or righteous. God defines righteousness in the pattern of his law. Since that law came from God, it's perfect. That means you can't improve on it. And so that means that anything that changes that is not an improvement. So when you have progressive taxation, it's a violation of the pattern that God established in the law. But you don't have, there's, there's two types of taxes that we have today that you don't have in the law. You don't have an inheritance tax. Why? Because God wants people to be productive and to amass wealth generationally, and you can't do that if you have a penalty for accumulating wealth called an inheritance tax. Second, there's no property tax because property tax implies that the ultimate owner of the real estate is the state. Ah, but who owns the land? God does. So that sees man as a steward, man as a responsible manager who is given land that he is to do something with. And in the Mosaic Law, the state doesn't have the right to come in and tax that because the state doesn't own it. God does. And that violates that principle. But what happens in an autonomous state that has rejected uh, the role of God in terms of the ownership of his creation is that you have the, the state comes in and says, we really own all of this land. You're just a tenant. And to prove it, you're going to pay us X number of dollars a year for property tax. Now, just because we live in a nation that has property taxes, and, and that's not a genuinely, consistently biblical idea, doesn't mean you don't have to pay your property taxes. Okay, you still render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. Okay, 
But, but we need to get rid of the property tax, and we need to get rid of the inheritance tax because these violate the principle of productivity. They hold us back, and they just put more money in the hands, uh, hands of government so that what happens is the government takes over more and more arenas of responsibility that belong to the individual, the family, the marriage, or the family, and they are usurping control and, and, and bringing it under their, their own uh, area because they want to control it through the control of the resources or, or the money. Okay. Now, <clears throat> all of that was point number one was a definition. Point number two was the five divine institutions. Point three was the authority structure. All that this so far has been all under uh, the explanation of individual responsibility and observations related to it. Point number five. Labor, then, the way I'm using it, should be defined as responsible to service to God. God puts man in the garden to avad. That's labor, avad, serving God. Labor is responsibly serving God. And it was a pleasurable and enjoyable activity. And it provided opportunity for the creature to develop and expand through the use of create, through his own initiative and creativity, uh, the resources that God had given him under God's authority. Now, this is really an interesting point I make here, and I may not make it the best, um, but it's a responsible service of God under his authority to develop, expand, and manage the resources. Years ago, probably when I was in college and way before I really understood the significance of this, my dad was musing in the car one day and said, you know what makes a person creative? They don't, they're not restricted by boundaries. I've thought about that for years. That was a really good observation. A person who's creative is not going to be bound by tradition or convention or what has been done. He wants to find a new way to do it, a new way to express it. So there's something within the nature of creativity that's pushing some boundaries. The trouble in a fallen world is that there are some boundaries you can't change. So creative people I have found, observation, which is always uh, an experience, which is always limited, is that people who are extremely creative also have a very difficult time with authority. And they have a very difficult time uh, with the authority of God. Because they want part of this this thing about being creative has something to do with pushing boundaries, doing something new, doing something in a different way, and not being able to recognize what boundaries can be crossed and what boundaries can't be crossed. And the divine institutions are boundaries that can't be crossed. A creative person wants to get outside, the, think outside the box. And that's great as long as the box isn't the creation ordinances of God and the moral absolutes of God. So labor is responsible service, and it's up to man to exploit or use or develop. I'm using exploit in a good sense there. To take what God has provided in terms of raw material and then to explore, develop all of its properties and all of its qualities and to build and develop things with it. And as he does that, then the things that are developed have have use and utilization and value for the culture. Ah, I just used that word value, didn't I? See, that's another word. We've talked about property as being something that is is related to, to economics. We've talked about uh, we've talked about responsible labor and now I, I, I brought in this idea of value because when you produce something, when one person produces one thing and another person produces something else and one person doesn't have what the other person has but they would like it, then how do you trade for it? How much value do you place on something you don't have? And value is something that uh, it, it's important for us to understand. Now, I'm going to read through some material here that I've thought out. But it's incredibly important because there's going to be an important application at the end that takes us right to the cross. And it has to do with value 
And isn't it interesting that God uses economic verbiage to describe the cross, redemption, expiation, payment of a debt, all these terms, forgiveness, all these terms are economic terms because there is a value to what the, to the transaction that it takes place on the cross. So point five was labor is defined as responsible service to God. Point number six, just a reminder, uh, back on Genesis 1, 26, and, uh, 26 to 28, the five mandates plus Genesis 2, 15 to uh, cultivate and serve. Now, point number seven here, economics is the study of value the value that a market imputes to a person's productivity. So from the time of the garden, there's an assignment of value to what people produce, at least potentially. So questions need to be raised. Is value determined objectively or subjectively? If you read in Genesis chapter 2, you realize at the surface of the earth, there were places where there was you could easily find gold and silver and 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 you know precious metals and and minerals that have great value today. Is, is so? Is the question we're asking is is gold? Now this comes up also in terms of money policy. I'm certainly not an expert on this topic, but but you often hear people want. Well, let's return to the silver standard. Let's return to a gold standard. Is that because gold and silver are intrinsically valuable or as a culture we just assign value? Now that's really important because when you assign value to gold, what did you just do? You imputed value. That's the term. You impute value to gold. You impute value to silver. Don't we have something to do with the gospel here and imputation? See, it's so interesting how all these things uh, relate to one another. So we need to address the question, is value determined objectively or subjectively? Is the value inherent in the thing itself, like I just said, is, or is it imputed? Um, let me give you a little example. If you are a Spanish explorer, let's say you are Coronado, and you're going up from Mexico to uh, through... Um, uh, going up from Mexico through New Mexico, Colorado, and you're looking for the city of gold, the Sibylla. And let's say for sake of argument that when you come across that little dirty Pueblo village, they really do have a stash of gold, which they never did. But uh, you now have all of this gold, and yet you're stranded out on the Llano Estacado, which is the Stake Plains of Texas and New Mexico. But what are you lacking? You've got all this gold, but you don't have much food or water. So what's more valuable, a ton of gold or a couple of gallons of water? See, it's, it's, it's relative. The value of the gold is going to be determined by what it, what it can help you get. The value of the water and the food would have much greater value. So we talk about value. We need to think in terms of what makes something valuable. Why is gold valued in one culture but not in another culture? What about petroleum? Think about this. I think that today the barrel of oil hit around 96 or 97, depending on which market you're looking at. What if it was 1550? You think you think a barrel of petroleum would be worth $95 a barrel, $96 a barrel in 1550? No, they didn't use it for anything. Said so maybe lighting candles or lighting a lamp. So, what makes something valuable has something to do with you know supply and demand. In Marxism, the claim is that value is related to labor. Everything's in Marxism is related to labor. Uh, others would claim that that for example, gold is intrinsically valuable, so therefore we should be on a gold standard because it has an intrinsic value. So that's going to change. It affects all of these different kinds of things. So let's just. I've got about another few points to make here. I've got about we'll go five or six minutes. Okay. First of all, in terms of value, how do we understand value? First point: God evaluated his labor 
in chapter 1 and said it was good. He evaluated it. You know, that's that word. He evaluated it. He assigned a value to his creation, and he said it was good. Uh, many times, 1-4, 110, 112, 118, 125, he said, he looked at what he'd done that day, and he pronounced it good, tov. This doesn't mean that God said it was righteous. This isn't being used in a moral sense. It's being used in a functional sense. He had a blueprint, and he had a work order, and work order said on day one, you're going to do this. Day one, he did this. At the end, he said, I accomplished the task, finished it. It's exactly what I wanted. It's good. At the end of the, at the, end of the week, God said, God looked at everything. He had completed the entire project, and he said it was very good. It's not a moral term. You'll have some people who come in and say, well, this is a moral sense here, and that's how we know that Satan hadn't fallen yet is because God said everything was, was very good. It's a moral term. You have a problem, though. In Genesis chapter 2, God looks at the man and says it's not good for man to be alone. If good means some, is a moral term, then the implication is that it's not moral for a man to be alone. It's not morally good for a man to be alone. You've got a real problem with that. What God is saying, though, is that it's not according to my plan for man to be alone. It's not the best thing. So when God says it's good, he's evaluating it and assigning a value to his creation. Second point, building on that, the creation is good because God says it is good. He is the ultimate standard, remember, and so his, the creation conforms to his standard and what he intended. Therefore, three, we say from Genesis 1, what did God do? God imputed value to his creation. That's the first imputation in the scriptures. Really, God imputed value to, to his creation. He said it was very good. Then fourth, God created man in his image, and so that man is going to do certain things in his life as an image bearer that reflects God, God's character and God's mission for him. Fifth point, divine institution number one states that man is responsible to God. Therefore, God, I mean, man does not operate independently of God, but man is to operate dependently upon God. He is to think in terms of the categories and the structure that God has assigned him, but within those categories and structure, there is room for development for man to think in terms of the abilities that, that God has given him. So six, we see that man uh, is given certain tasks to perform, like naming the animals, classifying them, categorizing them, and so he begins to exercise his dominion over, over creation. Seventh point, this assignment of value then begins to lay, lay down the basic principles that govern our view of economics. How do we assign value for the process of trading, trade and exchange? Now, this relates, this is my next point, point number eight, if you're trying to keep the numbers together. I wouldn't try that. Just think with me. This relates to this fundamental question in economics, which is how do you assign value? Is it intrinsic, which would be objective, or is it extrinsic? It is something that is relative to, to how it is used within a culture. The objective view of value is a theory that, there's intrinsic value in gold or silver or diamonds. In the late 1870s, economists developed a theory called the marginalist theory of value or the subjective view of value, and that has to do with the idea that of what we've talked about, that there's an imputation of value. Now, one of the major proponents in the 20th century of, an, of a subjective view of, va uh, of uh, value was Ludwig von Mises, Mises, which is who's the one of the uh, fathers of the Austrian school of um, of economics, and I'm I'm not picking on him, but you know even if you go to to uh, uh, Friedman and Chicago school school or any of these guys, they're all empiricists, and you just have to understand that. But I did run across this quote from Ludwig von Mises, which I think is important. Now, what have I talked about? We have the Godhead. You have social structure, have an economic structure. You can't separate them. God's, God creates man, puts him in the garden, they fail. And what do you have as a result of fail? You have personal problems now. You have conflict. 
This develops throughout history, and all of a sudden you have trade wars, and you have tariffs, and you have all these other things that all relate to economics. So we have this brilliant statement by the founder of the Austrian School of Economics. He says, related to Christianity, he says, we may leave aside the genuine dogmas such as creation, incarnation, the Trinity, as they have no direct bearing on the problems of interhuman relations. Did you catch that? This is why the, the fundamental issue is how do you know what you know? What's your ultimate view of reality? You know, sometimes when I get off on this, I know people will probably say, you know, that just gets so theoretical and so abstract. Let me tell you, here, here's a guy who is the founder of an entire school of economic theory, and I'm not just picking on, on him. You know, er, er, this is the flaw of human thought and the flaw of empiricism. He says, forget the Trinity, forget the incarnation, forget that God is creator. That has no bearing on the problems of interhuman relations. That means you, you can't start with the Bible to get to truth. You can only start with empiricism. And that's just a, a flawed methodology from the get-go. But it's not unique to him. Now, he came to a lot of really good decisions. Milton Friedman comes to a lot of good decisions related to economics, but it's not because they're consistent with their foundation. It's because they happen to stumble on some creation truth and they stuck with it. So that was just a little aside that I knew would probably please some of you. Um, so we have recognition within the, these more conservative schools of economics, recognition that we have to have that, that economics is founded on property, ownership, individual responsibility, and a subjective view of value, which was what we see in the scriptures. Now, isn't that interesting? As I've gone through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I've laid out that at the very beginning, the emphasis on individual responsibility, property, they, they're given the property in the Garden of Eden for, their, for productivity, and, and productivity, all this is the foundation for, for economics, which is exactly what we see emphasized in, our, in these schools of of economics. One thing that I want to close with is to show that that uh, the the other part of this I just got through saying that there's that that a value is assigned subjectively, right? But there are exceptions. This is why you have to stick with the scriptures. For example, you take the Bible as a book. You take Playboy magazine as a book. Now, in a decadent society or certain subcultures within that society, the Bible has no value in the marketplace, but there is great value placed on pornography. Now, which has intrinsic value? The Bible does because it's God's word. It has intrinsic value. Scripture says it's more to be desired than gold. So some things have intrinsic value, but what are those things that have intrinsic value? It's the things that relate to eternity, to the Godhead. That's where the ultimate value lies. So once again, to think in terms of economics, you have to break it down in terms of the creator-creature distinction and the role of the creator and the role of the creature. Value is assigned by God so that at the cross where the eternal second person of the Trinity pays the penalty for sin, God imputes a value to that. And that value then in turn gets imputed to every human being that trusts in Christ for salvation. That's an understanding of justification. Okay. Next time we'll come back, review this a little bit, because I know that this is the kind of stuff that just... You need to hear it several times before it gets in your head, and I need to go through my notes several times so it gets in my head. But we need to understand what, how we got where we are today, but we really need to look at these, how these principles of personal responsibility, private ownership of property, and, and, and value and labor 
are, are worked out throughout all of the Scripture, and they're consistent. There's just no change. So we'll, we'll carry on next time. Father, thank you for this time together. Uh, stretch our thinking a little bit about the implications of your word as we uh, see what's there and understand it and think about it, as we meditate on your word to come to an understanding of the implications of your labor for our understanding of our service to you and economics. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.